This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, the Town Board of Nederland recently passed a resolution recognizing the rights of the nearby Boulder Creek watershed. We're actually trying to change the hearts and minds so that we could think about nature differently. Coming up, we explore the impact of that resolution and learn more about the rights of nature movement. Plus, we hear the story of a music video showcase that aired on TV in Colorado six months before the launch of MTV. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. When Governor Jared Polis was running for office in 2018, he generated a lot of support through his interest in pursuing bold climate policies. Among them was a platform of achieving 100% renewable energy by the year 2040. In Colorado, the transition from long-used fossil fuel sources to more sustainable energy generation is already underway. And several communities have adopted the goal of getting 100% of their energy from renewable sources, including Fort Collins, Pueblo, Aspen, and Nederland. The pursuit of a grid powered solely by renewable energy sources presents a lot of challenges and opportunities. A recent paper from researchers with the U.S. National Renewable Energy Laboratory explores these challenges and opportunities and what could be in store for the future of renewable energy. KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke with Paul Denholm, a principal energy analyst with NREL, about their research and what it reveals about the path toward the Polis administration's climate goals. Your paper took a look at what it would take to get to a 100% renewable power grid. Just for context, when we talk about a renewable power grid, what exactly do we mean? That means that all the electricity that you use when you turn on your lights, when you turn on your computer, will be derived from renewably derived electricity sources. So the main sources here in Colorado will likely be wind and solar. In other states, we get a lot of electricity from hydroelectricity, but here in Colorado, we don't have a whole lot of that. So we'll be relying mostly on wind and solar to provide that 100% renewable electricity. So your paper discussed two major challenges to reaching that 100% renewable goal what you call the balance challenge and something called the inverter challenge. Um, Let's pick those apart one at a time. What is the balance challenge? The balance challenge is making sure that whenever you flip that switch on for your lights, that renewable resources or energy derived from renewable resources is available. The demand for electricity varies as a function of time of day and season. When it's hot outside, the demand for electricity peaks around 4 to 6 p.m. We don't use as much at 4 a.m. And then we use a lot more during the summer than we do during the fall and spring. So the balance challenge describes making sure that constantly varying demand for electricity is met by renewable resources, which can be sometimes a little bit fickle. They don't always supply energy exactly when we need them. And so the balance challenge is ensuring that we deploy the right mix of resources and what we call enabling technologies such as energy storage to make sure that the supply demand balance is always met. Is it safe to say that the longer the time period, the more difficult um, that storage challenge becomes? So seasonal is more difficult than daily, is more difficult than hourly? Absolutely. So batteries are great for storing energy for four, six, maybe even eight hours. We have pump storage plants here in Colorado. They pump water up a hill. They release it later on. That's a great way of storing energy for, say, eight hours to match that daily mismatch. But yes, when you get into seasonal, that's a lot more difficult. You you can't really build batteries that'll store energy for a month. That's not really economic yet. So we need to look at for other resources for that seasonal mismatch. And that's really where the challenge is because those technologies tend to be a little less mature and a little bit more expensive. 
So let's move on to that other challenge, the inverter challenge. Uh, what does that mean? So the inverter challenge is associated with the fact that wind and solar generation resources use a different type of generator to produce electricity. So instead of the large spinning generators that fossil, nuclear, and large hydroelectric plants use, they use power electronics based generators that we call inverters. Okay, and for those of us who are not electrical engineers, what's an inverter? An inverter is a device that converts one form of electricity into another. So the electricity that actually comes out of a solar cell or wind turbine, you can't actually put that on the grid. It doesn't have the right characteristics. So an inverter is something that turns the non-usable form of electricity that a solar cell works into the type of electricity that the grid uses. So given these two challenges, the balance challenge and the inverter challenge, when we look at the technology we have now today, how close can we realistically come to that goal of an all renewable energy grid? So we have increasing consensus among a lot of electrical engineers and grid operators and utilities that we think we have a pretty clear path towards achieving something around 80, perhaps 90% electricity with either known technologies or technologies that we think will be deployable in the near term. It's that last 10 to 20% that we still don't have a really good grasp on how are we gonna achieve that? And that's where these seasonal storage technologies come in play. That's where making sure that we address the inverter challenge by uh, developing new inverter technologies that can can provide most of, or even all of the grid's electricity. So it's, it, it's really around that last 10% that we need to do more research and development. And that's where places like the National Renewable Energy Laboratory come into play developing those new technologies, testing them on the grid, making sure they're ready for prime time so they can be deployed by the utilities and enhance the reliability and the resiliency of the power grid. Are the challenges here any different than in the rest of the country? Do we have the same odds? Do we have any advantages, any disadvantages for, you know, in that renewable grid game? So here in Colorado, we're actually in better shape than a lot of states. We have really good wind resources in the Eastern Plains. We have access to some of the best wind resources in the world up in Wyoming. And we also have really good solar resources, both throughout the state. And we have really great uh, resources in places like the San Luis Valley. So we are kind of above average in terms of the accessibility of the renewable energy, where it comes down to the same challenge that we have here in Colorado as the rest of the country is the seasonal challenge, where where are you going to get the electricity during those cold winter days where it's maybe a little bit cloudy or during those hot summer afternoons where it's not particularly windy. Uh, so those are the same challenges we have in here in Colorado, but fortunately we do have great wind and solar resources. Where does moving to a 100% renewables-based grid, where does that fit into the larger context of trying to reduce our carbon emissions? Yeah, so electricity provides a lot of the carbon dioxide emissions in our economy. So if we reduce the carbon emissions from that, those resources, we'll go a long way. The other thing, of course, is we need to reduce emissions from other sectors. So transportation is still primarily burning gasoline and diesel fuel. And then we heat our homes primarily in Colorado with natural gas, cook our food with natural gas, and then a lot of industrial processes also rely a lot on natural gas. So we'll need to reduce emissions from those sectors as well. Electrification can go a long way in doing that. So every time you buy an electric car, you're transferring the emissions from the gasoline, and instead you're using electricity. And as the 
power grid becomes cleaner and cleaner, we'll come closer to 100% decarbonization of the transportation system. So electrification is seen by many as the key element to reducing carbon dioxide emissions from our whole economy. So Paul, based on your research, are you optimistic about Colorado's ability to achieve its renewable energy goals? I'm optimistic that we can greatly increase the amount of renewables on the grid. I'm always hesitant to talk about whether or not we're going to easily get to 100% or 98%. I, I think that renewables in terms of really the goal of deep decarbonization, of removing the CO2 from our emissions, and also providing clean air. It's not just about carbon, it's uh, reducing air emissions from coal and natural gas plants. We can do a huge amount in the coming decades. So whether or not it's 100%, I don't know, but we can go really, really far. That was KUNC's Ray Solomon speaking with Paul Denholm, a principal energy analyst with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. In February of 1981, six months before MTV, a program called FMTV launched in Colorado on public television's KBDI Channel 12. The music video showcase eventually became known as Teletoons, and for almost two decades, it helped shape how many saw and heard music. Among its fans, its impact can still be felt today. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick has more. I don't exactly remember the first time I watched Teletoons, but I'm sure it was because the show's intro featured the promise of videos by pop stars like Cyndi Lauper, Madonna, and Michael Jackson. And yes, Teletoons did play those videos, occasionally, but you were more likely to see some of the obscure artists of the time, like The Residents. Barnes and Barnes and the B-52s. The original video was, uh, you would hear these notes of, uh, it was the King Crimson song, Elephant Talk, and you'd hear this, you know, this Adrian Ballou guitar. And uh, talk is only talk. Talk, it's only talk. Benji McPhail is the program director for KUNC's sister station, The Colorado Sound. He's also a longtime Teletoons fan who still can picture the montage of video clips that would start each show. The video I remember from that opening intro was the plasmatics, and you'd see Wendy Williams riding on top of the school bus, and they'd blow it up at the end, and you're like, that's Teletoons. Teletoons was an early part of the programming on the fledgling Channel 12 lineup. The station, which had just begun a year earlier, was still trying to find its niche. When the station first went on the air, it was really scrambling for content. Sherry Burnson is the director of development for what's now known as PBS 12. It wasn't really hooked up on this PBS distribution chain as it is now, so they were very open. They were also trying to produce a lot of their own content. Back in the 80s, she was one of the folks behind Teletoons, working as both a programmer and presenter for the show. There's nothing like a little bit of Channel 12 coffee first thing in the morning. And there were some real music lovers there who were aware of these things starting to happen called music videos. And by that time, MTV had launched um, and music videos were in the pipeline originally as a promotional tool to help move, uh, to move units, to generate sales and, and airplay. The early days featured videos like Kim Carnes' Betty Davis Eyes and the Buggles' Video Killed the Radio Star. Betty 
they pushed the envelope with some that, at the time, were seen as controversial. She's got well, we did get a lot of viewer mail, and let me just say that people take their music very seriously. I remember letters of, you know, how dare you play Def Leppard? Why are you playing that band with the guy that wears the lipstick? The show helped expand people's worldview about their music. And I think that's why people really still love it and they have such fond memories. Batsheva Frankel is now a podcaster in Los Angeles, but growing up in Denver, she and her friends watched the show religiously, including when it first began as FM TV. Because it felt like ours and not like we were just absorbing some commercial product of being told what is good. They played everything. One of her favorite memories was a contest to change the show's name. Frankel and a friend submitted a long list of ideas. I don't know how it started, but we just started taking the word Tella and putting it with like everything we could think of. And we were just walking around like, tell a stereo, tell a this, tell a that. And we came up with teletoons. And then we sent the whole list in. And we didn't really think anything of it. They were excited when the new name was revealed until they heard the names of the winners. They announced these two other guys that came up with it. And we're like, wait a minute, we also came up with that. And so we contacted them. We said, hey, we also did. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. You did. They saw our list. And I'm like, you also did. Okay, so you also will come in and be VJs for the night. Unfortunately, there's no archived video of that night. Frankel's Betamax failed to properly record it. But the memories she has of Teletoons are etched in her brain and also in Rich Italiano's ears. The fact that I could do my own music video show on television for the world to see, well, the Denver audience, um, was just uh, a dream that I couldn't even imagine. Italiano started out as a Teletoons fan and later became a programmer, host, and finally music director for the show until it was canceled in 1999. We were just heartbroken, everyone. Most of the staff dispersed. We took the show to DCTV, public access, for the next three years. And um, so we, we stayed on the air, kind of low-key, uh, because it was just cable access. But we kept the, the message and the, kind of the dream of what Teletoons is all about. But in some ways, the show is still around. 12 years ago, the Facebook page Fans of Teletoons was established. It's a place where people can share some of their favorite music videos from the show, kept alive thanks to YouTube. That sense of nostalgia even sparked a call from some fans for the return of Teletoons. PBS 12's Sherry Burnson says they've toyed with the idea of bringing it back in some format, but there's a lot of hurdles. Back then, it was a bare-bones outfit with staff routinely recording the current week's show over the previous weeks to save tape. Nobody had the vision at that time, really, to think that far ahead. And then we were so busy, you know, just to get the clips on the air for that weekend or, or that week. Maybe a couple weeks later, they recorded a Nova feed over it or something. I mean, literally. Actual copies of full shows are rare, coming mainly from home VHS recordings from fans. PBS 12 still owns the music videos themselves. The three-quarter-inch videotapes are stored off-site. Burnson says they've looked at the overwhelming and expensive task of transferring the thousands of tapes to a digital format. But while the station still owns the broadcast rights to the music videos, 
they don't have streaming rights, and many of the record companies no longer exist. Where do you even start? Who do you even track down for 405 Records that was out of San Francisco with Romeo Void and other acts from that area? It's almost impossible. Almost impossible, but not completely. Like one of Teletoons' favorite bands, Romeo Void sings, Never Say Never. Stacy Nick, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last week, the Nederland Town Board agreed to recognize the rights of a body of water. The so-called Rights of Nature Resolution was the first of its kind in Colorado. But despite this recognition, the resolution isn't an ordinance, meaning it's not necessarily enforceable. Instead, supporters of the measure say the softer, resolution-based approach could allow for fewer legal battles and more neighbor-to-neighbor conversations. Here to help us make sense of it all is Gary Walkner, director of Save the Colorado, a nonprofit devoted to protecting the Colorado River and its tributaries. He has been at the forefront of advancing the rights of nature movement here in Colorado. Gary, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you, Henry. Glad to be here. So first up, the rights of nature, likely unfamiliar to many of our listeners. Let's start there. What rights does nature have? Well, in American law, nature actually has very few rights. We've created a legal system that uh, is centered around, you would call that anthropocentric, whereas a legal system that would be centered around uh, all the critters that we share the planet with and the country with would be ecocentric. And so the concept of rights of nature has been around for thousands of years because it's it's been practiced and still practiced in some indigenous cultures, but it's relatively new um, in the United States in the last 30 or 40 years, and gaining steam a lot in the last five years, especially. Rights of Nature um, looks at the non-human world, so trees, wildlife, water, rivers, those kinds of things, and and considers the concept of do they have rights. And this originally um, got started in in a larger way in the United States because there was an actual Supreme Court case around should trees have standing? And there was a um, justice at the time named William O. Douglas on the US Supreme Court. And he wrote a relatively famous uh, dissenting opinion uh, arguing that trees should have standing and they should be able to go into court themselves and file lawsuits. And so um, that's the general concept is that, um, you know, the American legal system is, is all around people. Now, fascinatingly, it's changed recently because corporations also have standing and corporations are treated as people in the American legal system and also in the American political system. Whereas nature in the non-human world uh, really has no voice unless we uh, specifically create laws and create opportunities for it to do so. And so the rights of nature movement is a um, somewhat philosophical, but also somewhat illegal and just kind of a you know a cultural movement to start recognizing that we share this world with a vast number of, of creatures and the ecosystem processes, and we need to f- do that much better than we're doing it right now. One thing I'm curious about uh, with this whole you know anthropocentric versus ecocentric stuff, all of the systems you're describing, all of our governance and laws and debates, resolutions, what have you, that's all in English and safe to say that nature doesn't speak English uh, and can't communicate with us. So in the context of our language-based system of government, how can nature defend its rights? 
Yeah, great question. And it's even more than that. You know, our, our legal, political, economic system is all about people and for people and, and benefits to people. And so in order to give nature standing, we have to, first of all, say that nature has some standing and sort of put them in our context as they're like, you know, somewhat equal as a person. But then what rights of nature laws and ordinances and resolutions like the one that passed in Netherlands um, do is give local governments, in this case, the opportunity to appoint a guardian. So an actual person who's chosen or, or persons who are chosen to be the guardians for the uh, non-human world, in this case, it'd be Boulder Creek Watershed in Netherlands. Um, and those guardians are able to um, come to the town board and then speak on behalf of nature. And the concept of guardianship, again, does have precedence in uh, U.S. legal law because we create guardians for uh, people who are underage. We create guardians for people who don't have the mental capacity to represent themselves. And so the concept of creating a guardian for uh, a river or wildlife or a tree in the legal system, uh, it's based on that concept of you know, giving rights so that people can actually come forward and speak for those non-human entities. Well, on the note of Nederland and the town board passing this resolution, recognizing the rights of nature for Boulder Creek, that's a pretty big move for a community to kind of make a resolution like that. As we noted, it was kind of the first of its kind in Colorado. What do you think this signifies about the time we're in as it relates to these kind of nature rights issues? Well, the, the rights of nature movement has been increasing across the planet the last five years, especially. Um, there's been a few governments that have recognized rights of nature. There's been several rivers that have been recognized, including the Ganges River in India and the Wanganui River in New Zealand. The Wanganui is actually was sort of the famously the first river on the planet that got what we call personhood. And so, um, you know, the, the concept here is that we would give some legal standing and rights to Boulder Creek and the watershed, um, and then people could come before the town board uh, and speak on behalf of the creek and watershed. There, it has happened in other communities where they passed ordinances, and then those kind of relatively quickly turned into court battles. And because this, this isn't an ordinance, there's nothing that anybody can do or say to you know, challenge it in court, at least. Uh, so we're, we're hoping it actually starts a friendly community conversation about the role of nature and decision-making in, in Netherlands and in the watershed in Netherlands. This creates an opportunity for any person in the community to come before the town board and speak on behalf of nature. And it, and it also creates the opportunity for the Netherlands town board itself to appoint guardians whose actual role it is to come before them and speak on behalf of nature and the watershed. Gary, I'm curious what you see as sort of the challenges in helping this idea propagate in a way that's meaningful. You know, the challenges are that this takes time. We're not necessarily trying to change law or create laws that people can then just go to court. We're actually trying to change the hearts and minds so that we could think about nature differently. And so when we do something, we say, well, what would the river say if we were able to ask it about the concept of, you know, this pollution that's being poured into it or that it's um, wetlands alongside of it being dried up or they got a dam built on it or something like that? What would the river say? And so um, we're taking our time here and we see a process that we're 
going to try to help play out over the next five to 10 years uh, in the Colorado River Basin, especially Colorado and Utah, which is where we've had the conversations right now, so that people can start to get their mind around the, this concept. And it doesn't just immediately go into kind of a contentious, litigious uh, place where it becomes you know, extremely controversial. The general concept is to, um, to help us start thinking about nature as a voice in decisions. Uh, and what would it say if it could come towards the town board and speak about a current proposed development or the way that there's stormwaters running off the streets into the, the, the Boulder Creek, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, you know, and watersheds are really the, um, they're kind of the, uh, the funnel for everything that happens in the community. You know, all water flows downhill. Everything we do on the land ends up in the water. And so the concept of creating a right to nature for a watershed is kind of an all-encompassing concept to think about, you know, ecological health and uh, ecocentrism as opposed to just anthropocentrism, what works best for people. Gary Walkner is the director of Save the Colorado, a nonprofit that works to protect the Colorado River. Gary, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Henry. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.